Welcome to the Nonlinear Library, where we use text-to-speech software to convert the best writing from the rationalist and EA communities into audio. This is, Abstractions as Redundant Information, published by John Swentworth on February 13, 2022 on the AI Alignment Forum. What is it that makes the concept of pencil a good abstraction? One way to frame it, there are lots of pencils in the world, lots of little chunks of the world which I could look at which all contain information about pencils in general. Many different places from which I could gain information about pencils, and many different places where I can apply that information to make predictions. If I don't know that pencils are usually made of wood with a graphite core, there are many different chunks of the world which I could look at to gain that information. If I do know that pencils are usually made of wood with a graphite core, there are many different chunks of the world where I could apply that information to predict the materials from which something is made. Alternatively, consider a gear, spinning in a gearbox. What makes the gear's rotational speed a good abstraction? Well, there are lots of little patches of metal comprising the gear. If I don't know the gear's rotation speed, I could precisely estimate it from any of the little patches. If I do know the gear's rotation speed, I can use it to predict the rotation of many different little patches of metal within the gear. This seems like an intuitively reasonable notion of what makes abstractions good in general. There are many different places from which we can learn the information, and many different places where we can apply the information to make predictions. In other words, a good abstraction is highly redundant, it appears in many different places, and in any of those places we can use the abstract information to make predictions and or gain more information about the abstraction in general. In this post I'll sketch out one way to formalize this idea mathematically, and show that it's equivalent to the formalization of abstraction as information at a distance. In particular, in the gear example, conditional on the highly redundant information, i.e. the overall rotation of the gear, the low-level rattling of far-apart chunks of metal is statistically independent. More generally, redundancy yields the same high-level abstract information as the telephone theorem, but in a mathematically cleaner form, and without the need for different summaries between different variables. Meta. Advice for readers, I try to keep the more dense math in a few specific sections and the appendices, which can all be skim-skipped if you just want a conceptual picture. Epistemic status, I'm aiming for physics-level rigor here. The proofs involve some shenanigans with infinite limits, and I expect them to contain subtle errors. However, I also expect that the results will accurately predict reality and practice, and that whatever subtle errors the proofs contain can be patched by the sort of mathematician who enjoys dealing with tricky limit shenanigans. Thank you to Rob Miles and Adam Shimmy for suggesting I try Excaladraw. Basic idea, redundant information is conserved under resampling. Suppose I sample the genomes of two random humans, G1 and G2. What information is redundant across these two random variables? One intuitively reasonable answer, if I threw away one of the two sequences, then the redundant information is whatever I could still figure out from the other. More generally, if I have a whole bunch of genomes from random humans, G1.GN, the redundant information is whatever I could still figure out after throwing one of them away. To formalize what I could still figure out after throwing one away, We'll use the idea of resampling. I throw away the value of Gi, and then sample a new value for Gi, using my original probability distribution conditioned on all the other genomes. So, for instance, I throw away Gi, then I look at all the other genomes and see that in most places they're the same, so when I sample my new Gi, I know that it should match all the other genomes in all those places. However, there are a few locations where the other genomes differ, for example, maybe 10% of them contain a particular mutation. So, When I sample my new GI, it will contain that mutation with roughly 10% probability, assuming there's enough data to swamp the impact of my priors. Now I repeat this process many times, each time throwing away one randomly chosen genome and resampling it conditional on the others. Intuitively, 
I expect that the information conserved by this process will be whatever information is highly redundant, so that approximately zero loss occurs at each step. General method. Start with a bunch of random variables x1.xn, a joint distribution px vertical barm base, and a value x0i for each variable. See the equations section below for more details on the notation. At each time step, pick one variable at random, throw away its value, and resample it conditional on all the other variable values. Run this process for a long time. See what information about the initial conditions x0 is conserved. Conceptual example, gear. Suppose I have a gear, spinning around in a gearbox. I look at a few nanometer size patches on the gear's surface, just a hundred-ish atoms each, and measure the, approximate, position and velocity of each atom in each little patch. Notation, random variables i gives the positions and velocities of each atom in patch i. What information is redundant across these different patches? Intuitively, I can look at any patch and average together the rotational velocities of the atoms about the gear center to get a reasonably precise estimate of the gear's overall rotation speed. If I throw away xi, I can still precisely estimate the gear's overall rotation from the other x's. Then, when I resample xi, I will resample it so that the average rotational velocity of the atoms in xi matches the gear's overall rotation. Equations. Notation. We'll use xt for the variable values after t steps of this process, and x for variable values after running the process for an arbitrarily long time. So, we're mainly interested in the mutual information between x0 and x. The resampling process itself specifies the distribution px vertical bar x0, mresample. We'll use model variables mbase and mresample to distinguish probabilities from the base distribution, which is only over x1.xn versus probabilities from the resampling process, which is over x01.x0n, x11.x1n, x1.xn. One potential point of confusion both models contain a variable called x, but these two variables are in different scopes, in the programmer's sense, x means something different depending on which model it's in. In the base model, x is just a single instance of our base random variables. In the resampling model, x consists of many instances xt, one for each time step t, and each individual instance is distributed the same as the base models x we use the same variable name for both because there's a conceptual correspondence between the two. The resampling process defines the full relationship between the two models. px01 equals x1.x0n equals xn vertical barm resample equals px1 equals x1.xn equals xn vertical barm base. pz equals xi vertical barm resample, xt minus 1 equals x equals pzi equals xi vertical barm base, x does not equal i equals x does not equal i, assuming variable i is resampled at resampling time t. For all the other variables, p's t equals xi vertical barm resample, xt minus 1 equals x equals ixi equals 11, since their values just stay the same. px vertical barm resample equals px0 vertical barm resample tpxt vertical barm resample, xt minus 1. These equations follow directly from the process outlined above, and define the distribution px vertical barm resample, in terms of the distribution px vertical barm base. Dot. So we're running MCMC? If you've worked with Markov Chain Monte Carlo, MCMC, algorithms before, this should look familiar. We're basically asking which information about the initial conditions will be conserved as we run a standard MCMC process. If you've worked with MCMC algorithms before, you might also guess that this question has two answers. In theory, assuming px vertical barm base greater than zero everywhere, the resampling distribution always approaches px vertical barm base, as we run the process regardless of initial conditions. 
since we always approach the same distribution regardless of initial conditions, no information about the initial conditions is conserved. In practice, the time it takes for that limit to kick in increases, often exponentially, with the number of variables in the model, so lots of information is conserved in large models over any practically achievable number of steps of the process. In this post, we're going to think about infinitely large models, so the process no longer converges to px vertical barm base, at all, that convergence time goes to infinity. The distribution does still converge, but the limiting distribution depends on the initial conditions, and that dependence is exactly what we're interested in. Unfortunately, this introduces a bunch of tricky subtleties about how we take the limits. Do we take the limit of infinitely many variables first, or the limit of infinite time first, or do we take them at the same time with some fixed relationship between the two? I'll handle those subtleties mainly by ignoring them and hoping a mathematician comes along to clean it up later. Remember, we're aiming for physics-level rigor here. The important takeaway of this section is that we have a ton of data on how these sorts of processes actually behave in practice, thanks to the popularity of MCMC algorithms. So we don't just have to rely on physics-level of rigor arguments. Anyone with first-hand experience with MCMC on large models can use their intuition as a guide. I mostly won't explicitly talk more here about lessons from MCMC. I expect that those of you already familiar with the topic can reason it through for yourselves, and explaining the relevant experience intuitions to people not already familiar is beyond the scope of this post. Worked examples. Two variables. Let's start with a trivial example to show how any information at all can be conserved by the resampling process. We have two random variables, x1 and x2. Our model for the two variable values is. x1 is an unbiased coin flip. X2 is a record on a piece of paper indicating whether the coin came up heads or tails, H if the coin came up heads, T if the coin came up tails. What happens when we run our resampling process on this system? Well, first we throw away the coin flip, and resample it given our record. If the record says H, then we know the coin came up heads, so our sampler selects heads again for X1, vice versa for tails. The first coin is therefore reset to its original value. Then, we throw away the record, and resample it given our coin. If the coin is heads, we know the record says h, vice versa for tails. The record is therefore reset to its original value. The process continues, back and forth, with each variable storing the information when the other is thrown away, and the information then perfectly copied back over into the resampled variable value. On the other hand, imagine that our record keeping is imperfect, maybe there's a 10% chance that x2 records the wrong value. Then, at each time step of the resampling process, there's roughly a 20% chance, 10% for each variable, that we'll lose the original value. Given, say, 100 time steps, we'll lose approximately all of the information about the original values. General point, only information which is perfectly conserved at each time step will be conserved indefinitely, everything else is completely lost. In general, the information perfectly conserved indefinitely will be the value of deterministic constraints, i.e. functions f1 and f2 such that f1 x1 equals f2 x2 with probability 1 in the base distribution px vertical barm base. We can prove this via the telephone theorem plus an equilibrium condition, but it's not the main theorem of interest in this post. Many measurements of one thing. Let's say we have a stick of length L, and take n conditionally independent measurements x1.xn of L will model each measurement as normally distributed with mean L and standard deviation sigma, and we'll assume that we have enough data that the prior on L doesn't matter much, i.e. we'll just pretend the prior is flat. To simplify the analysis a little, we'll resample the variables in order rather than at random, i.e. we resample L conditional on all the measurements, then resample each of the measurements x1.xn conditional on L, and repeat. When we resample L, 
we draw from a normal distribution with mean equal to the average of the measurements, i.e. 1 n i xi, and standard deviation 1 n sigma, so our new L will be about 1 n sigma away from the previous average. When we resample the measurements, their new average will be normally distributed with mean L and standard deviation 1 n sigma, so the new average will be about 1 n sigma away from the previous L. In other words, L and the measurement average follow a random walk, drifting about 2 n sigma per time step. Over t time steps, they will drift a distance of about 2 t n sigma. In general, the distance a random walk drifts scales with t rather than t, since it often wanders back on itself. So, if we run the process for a number of steps t n, then all information about the initial conditions is lost. On the other hand, if the number of variables n t, then the drift is close to zero, so L and the measurement average are approximately conserved. The order in which we take our limits matters. Practically speaking, we're looking for information which is approximately conserved, i.e. the timescale t over which it's lost is large. So it makes sense to consider L and the measurement average as approximately conserved when n is large. That's our abstract information in this example. Factorization. Now for our first theorem about this kind of resampling process. Imagine that our base distribution is local, i.e. each variable only directly interacts with a few neighbor variables. When modeling a physical gear, for instance, each little chunk of metal only interacts directly with the chunks of metal spatially adjacent. Any longer range interactions have to go through those direct interactions. Our theorem says that interactions are still local after controlling for the information conserved by the resampling process. In the gear example, after controlling for the high-level rotation of the gear, the remaining low-level vibrations and rattling are still local. The low-level details of each chunk of metal interact directly only with the low-level details and chunks spatially adjacent. Why does this matter? In general, locality is the main tool which lets us reason about our high-dimensional world at all. It means we can look at one part of the world, and understand what's going on there without having to understand everything that's happening in the whole universe. The factorization theorem says that this still applies when we condition on our high-level knowledge, in other words, we can zoom in on lower-level details, and add them to our high-level picture without having to understand all the other low-level details in the whole universe. Conditional on our high-level knowledge, any low-level information still has to flow through neighboring variables in order to influence things far away in the graph. That's going to be key to our next theorem, which is the main item of interest in this post. Formal statement. Resampler conserves locality. If the base distribution px vertical barm base factors over some graph g, then so does the limiting resampling distribution px vertical barm resample x0. This factorization theorem applies to both undirected graphical models, i.e. Markov random fields, and directed graphical models, i.e. Bayes nets causal models. See the appendices for a proof sketch. In the gear example, the graph g would be the adjacency graph for chunks of metal. Each chunk is a node, and the edges show spatial adjacency. The factorization follows the standard formulas for factorization of Markov random fields or Bayes nets, depending on which type of graphical model we're using. The interesting part, resampler conserved quantities mediate information at a distance. Time for the big claim from earlier, in the gear example, conditional on the highly redundant information, i.e. the overall rotation of the gear, the low-level rattling of far-apart chunks of metal is statistically independent. More generally, Assume that our base distribution factors on a graph G conditional on all the quantities perfectly conserved by the resampling process, variables far apart in G are independent. If you've read the telephone theorem, this is basically the same, but with one big upgrade, our high-level summary no longer depends on which notion of far away we use. The same summary applies to any sequence of non-overlapping nested Markov blankets. We can take the information conserved by the resampling process to be the high-level abstractions for the whole model. 
Let's unpack that. First, we'll do a quick recap of the telephone theorem. We start with a large causal model Bayes net. Each node is a random variable, and the arrows show direct causal influence, paths show indirect causal influence. If you've used MCMC before, you were probably picturing something like this already. We usually use MCMC with Bayes nets, because the locality structure makes it easy to resample variables. We only need to look at neighbor values rather than the values of all variables. Now, just like in the telephone theorem, we picture a sequence of nested Markov blankets M1.MN in our model. Each possible sequence of blankets cuts the graph into pieces, with each piece only connected directly to the piece before and the piece after. A choice of sequence of blankets defines a notion of far away, i.e. if two variables are separated by a large number of layers of blankets in the sequence, then they are far apart. In order for M1 to have any mutual information with Mn, that information must propagate through each of the layers in between. The basic idea of the telephone theorem is that information is either perfectly conserved or completely lost as we move through enough layers. Information can only propagate far away if the information can be perfectly computed from each layer individually. Dot, but if some information can be perfectly computed from each layer individually, then that information will be conserved by a resampler. When resampling MN, I can still perfectly calculate the information from MN plus 1 or MN minus 1, and therefore the information will be perfectly conserved. So, the only information which can propagate far away is information which is perfectly conserved by resampling. That means that conditional on the information conserved by resampling, the mutual information must drop to zero. A slightly more formal version of that argument is in the appendices, but that's the core idea. Formal statement. Let F satisfy PX vertical barm resample, X0 equals PX vertical barm resample, FX0, i.e. F encodes the values of all conserved quantities in the resampling process. For any infinite sequence of nested non-overlapping Markov blankets B1, B2, on the base model, the conditional mutual information may be 1, Bn vertical bar Fx, 0 as n. Gear example. In the gear example, our Markov blankets might be nested layers of metal. Far away then indicates moving through a large number of such layers. In order for information to propagate far away, we must be able to compute it from each layer, i.e. we can very precisely compute the overall rotation of the gear from the overall rotation of chunks of metal in each layer. So, when we resample a chunk of metal, the overall rotation will be conserved, it will be stored in the other chunks. This reasoning must apply to any information which propagates through many layers. If the information propagates far away, it will be conserved by resampling. So, assuming the overall rotation is the only quantity conserved by the resampling process, far apart chunks of the gear must be independent given the overall rotation. Intuitively, this lets us factor the gear into a global component and a local component. The global component, the gear's overall rotation, is redundantly represented. It can be estimated by looking at many different little chunks, and we expect these estimates to, approximately, agree. The local component captures everything else, and is guaranteed to be local in the sense that far apart pieces are independent. Conclusion. We started with the intuition that abstraction is about redundant information. There are many different places from which we can learn the information, and many different places where we can apply the information to make predictions. That's what makes abstractions generalizable and useful. Then, we showed that a formalization of this intuition based on resampling variables reproduces the main ideas of abstraction as information relevant at a distance. In particular, the resampling approach yields a better version of the telephone theorem. Personally, I came to all this in a different order. I noticed that the telephone theorem required redundancy of information, figured out the resampling thing, and only backed out the intuition of abstraction as redundant information later. Nonetheless, 
It was an exciting thing to find, when different intuitive formulations of an idea turn out to be basically equivalent, that's strong evidence that we're on the right track. In terms of applications, the locality results in particular are exactly the sort of thing which I've been looking for since my last update on testing the natural abstraction hypothesis. In combination with the generalized Koopman-Pittman-Dermois theorem, they get us to the point where calculating abstractions from a base model is roughly tractable, i.e. it can be done in something like ON3 time with respect to the size of the base model. That still isn't quite efficient enough to handle big models, and unfortunately big models are exactly where we expect to see non-trivial results, so I'm still not quite at the point of running empirical tests. But it feels like the hard part is now past, there are some clear steps forward on the math, and I expect that those will basically close the gap to efficient calculation. On the theoretical side, the first leg of the natural abstraction hypothesis says. For most physical systems, the information relevant far away can be represented by a summary much lower dimensional than the system itself. Assuming the proofs in this post basically hold up, and the loopholes aren't critical, I think this claim is now basically proven. There's still some operationalization to be done, for example the dimension of the summary hasn't actually been addressed yet, loopholes to close, for example deterministic computation makes things tricky, some legwork to flesh it all out, for example including numerical approximation, various extensions, for example logical uncertainty, and a lot of distillation needed, but I think this math is enough to conclude that the basic claim is probably true in worlds following local laws, like ours. The basic idea is also useful even in non-local models, which I'll hopefully write about in the not-too-distant future. That form is more readily applicable to clustering style applications, like for example recognizing pencils as a kind of object. Appendices. Proof sketch. Factorization. We'll use three facts. First, Px vertical barm resample, x0, is invariant under resampling any variable, i.e. the distribution reaches an equilibrium as we run the resampling process. I won't actually prove that, because I don't expect that there's anything new involved, standard MCMC convergence proofs should largely carry over, allowing for conserved quantities, of course. Formally, PXD vertical barm resample, x0 equals PXD minus 1 vertical barm resample, x0, as t. Second, the resampler is local. PSD equals xi vertical barm resample, xt minus 1 equals x equals pzi equals xi vertical barm base, x does not equal i equals x does not equal i. Dot and. pzi equals xi vertical barm base, x does not equal i equals x does not equal i equals pzi equals xi vertical barm base, xnbi equals xnbi. Dot so. pzd equals xi vertical barm resample, xt minus 1 does not equal i equals x does not equal i equals pzd equals xi vertical barm resample, xt minus 1 nbi equals xnbi. Dot where xnbi indicates the neighbors of i in the graph on which base factors. Third, xt minus 1 does not equal i screens off x0 from xt, thus the Markov chain part of Markov chain Monte Carlo. So, pxt vertical barm resample, xt minus 1 does not equal i equals pxt vertical barm resample, x0, xt minus 1 does not equal i. Combining these three, we find pxt vertical barm resample, x0, xt does not equal i equals pxt vertical barm resample, x0, xtnbi, as t. Dot i.e. the neighbors which screen off xi from everything else in the base model also screen off xi from everything else in x, given x0. The Hammersley-Clifford theorem tells us that this is a sufficient condition for px vertical barm resample, x0, to factor over the graph g, modulo taking some limits. Note that the Hammersley-Clifford theorem applies to undirected graphical models. I won't prove the extension of our theorem to Bayes nets here because, again, 
there's nothing particularly novel involved. Proof sketch, resampler telephone theorem. Once we have locality of x given x0, this theorem is easy, it's exactly like the telephone theorem, but on the distribution px vertical barm resample, x0, rather than px vertical barm base. Because px vertical barm resample, x0, factors over the same graph as px vertical barm base, we can pick any sequence of non-overlapping nested Markov blankets b1.bn in the base model, carry them over directly to x, and apply the telephone theorem argument. The relationship between b1 and bn plus 1 is mediated by bn, so me b1, bn vertical bar x0, greater than or equal to me b1, bn plus 1 vertical bar x0. In other words, mutual information with b underscore 1 decreases as we move outward through the layers. Me is non-negative and decreasing, so it must approach a limit as n. Once the me is arbitrarily close to that limit, information about b1 is arbitrarily perfectly conserved. Information is perfectly conserved only when the information is carried by a deterministic constraint, i.e. pb1 vertical barm resample, x0, bn equals pb1 vertical barm resample, x0, fn bn, where fn bn equals fn plus 1 bn plus 1, with probability 1 for some fn, fn plus 1. The key thing to notice here is the deterministic constraint fn bn equals fn plus 1 bn plus 1. In the two variable example, we saw that exactly this kind of information is conserved by our resampling process. When we resample variables in bn, the constraint value is perfectly remembered by bn plus 1, and when we resample variables in bn plus 1, the constraint value is perfectly remembered by bn. Newly generated sample values are forced to be perfectly consistent with the constraint value, so that information sticks around. So, if fn bn equals fn plus 1 bn plus 1, with probability 1, and the blankets bn and bn plus 1 are non-overlapping, then the value f equals fn bn equals fn plus 1 bn plus 1, is perfectly conserved when resampling. It's perfectly conserved by the variables in bn when resampling a variable outside of bn, and perfectly conserved by the variables in bn plus 1 when resampling a variable outside of bn plus 1. So, conditional on information conserved by the resampling process, or, equivalently for purposes of the x distribution, conditional on x0, the value of f is known, it does not give any information at all. So, conditional on quantities conserved by resampling, the mutual information may be 1, bn vertical bar x0, must drop to 0 in the limit of large n. Thanks for listening. To help us out with the nonlinear library or to learn more, please visit nonlinear.org.